All right, so again, like I said, we'll be in James. And we're going to be focusing particularly on James chapter 1, verses 5 through 8 tonight. Let me just read from verse 1 through verse 8 to get us started. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes in the dispersion, greetings. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith, with no doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. So remember, first of all, that the human author of this letter that we have before us was James, the brother of Jesus, right? The son of the very same Mary and Joseph. Now, James, in adulthood, came to realize that Jesus, his brother, was no mere man, but is, in fact, God took on flesh, the very Lord and Savior of humanity. Now, James went on to become a prominent leader there in the church at Jerusalem, and in all likelihood really served as an elder there at the church. This letter we have before us is addressed to Jewish Christians who have been scattered beyond Jerusalem, uh, as it said, to the twelve tribes in the dispersion, greetings. Um, these folks were likely at one time a part of James's church there in Jerusalem, and honestly, because of that, it's not surprising that the letter has a distinctly pastoral tone, right? That from start to finish, it's filled with these exhortations, these encouragements to practical righteousness in Christ that really fit right in with that idea of a pastor addressing members of his congregation or former members, as is the case likely here. Now, last time I preached, we worked through verses 2 through 4, and we need to start with some review of those verses. Um, first of all, honestly, because they are just worth our consideration once more, James 1, verses 2 through 4 is just a tremendous portion of Scripture. Um, but honestly, particularly for tonight, it's going to have relevance as we work through verses 5 through 8. And that's going to be our focus for tonight, really. So look over at verse 2 again. Uh, James chapter 1, verse 2. Count it all joy, he says, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. Now, the bottom line of verses 2 through 4 was that we are commanded to take a heavenly perspective when we encounter trials in our life. That James says we are, in fact, supposed to consider trials as pure joy. That's the commandment he gives. Now, the word which is used, uh, meet, or perhaps encounter in verse 2, depending on your translation, referring to how trials come to our life, now that speaks to something which happens unexpectedly, right? Something that's not based on any choice of ours. The two other places in the Bible where this word is used, again, either meet or encounter, are first referring to a ship being shipwrecked, so meeting with the reef, and to a man falling among robbers, so meeting with robbers. The idea coming from that is that while from our perspective, this is often the case with trials, right, that we meet them as an unexpected, dreadful thing that we have no control over, um, that the reality is James here is lovingly exhorting us to consider them as pure joy instead. And again, really to look at trials from God's point of view rather than ours. 
So James tells us why we are to have this perspective now in verses 3 through 4. So look on to verse 3 now. Verse 3, For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. James says that we're to view trials of various kinds as pure joy because we are to see them again from God's perspective, and that is as tools in his hands to accomplish his purpose in our life. That really is the God-centered perspective on trials. Now, I recognize that God's involvement is not really explicitly there in the text, or at least it's not obvious that it is, especially as you look at verse 3 in particular. But the key here is that word testing, okay? The testing of your faith. This word is only used one other time in the New Testament. And both times that it's used, both there in Peter and here in James, are really used in the same way. And it's in relation to the purifying of precious metals in a furnace. Okay, that's the idea. Testing in that sense. So the idea is that when trials come, right, when we encounter trials of various kinds, that our faith is purified or that it is proven, how's about a better word, in the same way that precious metals are proven when a blacksmith takes them and puts them in the furnace. And this is really when we see God's hand, okay? This is when we see God's involvement. Because in the analogy here, who is the master blacksmith that is taking you and me and putting us in the furnace of various trials? Well, it's God himself, right? And so as God purifies our faith through the furnace of various trials, all that eventually remains is that which is of eternal, lasting stock or nature, Um, And that's what he's talking about in verse 4. So God is not done yet with verse 3. He goes on into verse 4. And let steadfastness have its full effect. And steadfastness is what I'm referring to, right? When I talk about that which remains being of eternal, lasting stock. That's what he says. Let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. And so the end which God works out through the purification of trials is one of both maturity and completeness, right? It's really this very whole wholeness. It's wholeness in every sense, both in terms of depth and in terms of breadth, right? That's what we could say. And so through trial, God first burns off, he purifies, he burns off that which should not be there, how's about? And then he gives us that which we lack, so he adds that which is missing, And then that which he has added and that which he's given us, he matures to its fullness. So it's a fullness of fullness, which God is working out through trial. And I would suggest, and I suggested last time, that really this fullness of fullness that God is working out is actually nothing less than God conforming us to the image of his son, right? As Paul says in Romans chapter 8, verse 29, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined, to be conformed to the image of his son. And so what this means is that the very eternal end which God has for us of conforming us to the image of his son, that he is ultimately working this out through, in part, trials. And I think, honestly, before we move on from this, that that picture of God as wise blacksmith is really worthy of our contemplation. Because expand it out a little bit. There we were, there each of us were, dead in our sins, as though crumbling, rusty metal has about in the analogy of the blacksmith. But then God, 
through nothing other than his own eternal and infinite mercy and grace, made us new from the inside out, right? And again, to use that picture, it's as if there suddenly existed a nugget of diamond or of gold, okay, at the core of the rusty metal. And now, through trials and through many other tools as well, honestly, God is burning off, first of all, the rest of that rusty metal, right? He's removing the influence of the flesh that remains. He's grafting on even more jewels, precious metals, things that we lacked. And that which is there now, he's polishing and expanding. And slowly but surely, again, he's conforming us to the image of Christ. That God is accomplishing nothing less than conforming you and I to the image of Christ through trial. And that is why James calls us to view this as joy. Now, the furnace of God's trials is never hotter than it needs to be, right? It's always set to exactly the right temperature. The blows of his hammer as a blacksmith always hit their mark exactly. He is perfectly deliberate, perfectly precise, and everything that God either actively does or else permits to enter into our lives by way of trial is, in fact, directed by his sovereign power to carry out this exact purpose in our lives. Romans 8, again, but this time including the following verse, so verse 28 and 29. And again, we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. And then verse 29 again. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And again, this is the reason that we are commanded to view trials as pure joy. That it's a rational command. We're not told just to pretend that trials are pure joy. We're commanded to view them in that way because they truly are. And they truly are because God is working out our absolute eternal end through them. Again, nothing short of conforming us to the image of his son, Jesus Christ himself. So that is God's end for us through trials. And yet, we know by experience, each of us, that it is quite one thing to say these things, right? Even to preach these things. And another thing entirely to put it into practice, right? As the saying goes, it's easier said than done, perhaps. And not only do we know this, but James, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, does as well. There's a great deal of wisdom, in fact, required in order to not only have the proper perspective on trials in our lives, but perhaps even more importantly and more difficultly, to live righteously in the face of those trials. And this really is what brings us now to verses 5 through 8. And again, this is where we're going to focus for the remainder of the evening. So let me read these verses again for us in particular. So we're in James chapter 1. We're going to read verses 5 through 8. If any of you lacks wisdom... Let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith, with no doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. So I'll be honest, I don't have much of an outline for you tonight. Um, but we're just going to work through these verses. I, I will say we're going to be a little heavier on verse 5, and then we're going to really pick up the pace kind of moving through verses 6 through 8. But that's kind of the, the extent of an outline that I've got. So let's start to unpack these. So verse 5 again. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, 
who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. And so first we have that setup that James provides. If any of you lacks wisdom. But you really need to hear it in conjunction with the prior verse, with verse 4, to kind of get the full effect, okay? So listen to this. Look at verse 4. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. Now, James's reuse of that word lack is not an accident. It's a clue, in fact, that he is not simply leaving behind the topic of trials and moving on to a new unrelated topic of wisdom. Rather, it is first and foremost in the context of trials that we are now going to discuss wisdom, okay? Many commentators pointed out that this repeating of a word as kind of the only thing that's giving you continuity from one piece of the argument to the next is really classic um, for literature that is similar to the letter of James. And really what they mean is literature that's really heavy on exhortation like this, okay? And so we need, to, we need to read a little bit into that. It's not just an accident that he reuses the word. He's telling us, hey, look, we're talking about trials. We still are, okay? Now let's bring wisdom into that context. So next, at first glance, the reading of if any of you, I think it makes it seem a little bit like what we're going to talk about is applicable to some and not to others, right? Almost like if you come to this and you think, oh, well, you know, I've already got wisdom, so I'm good to go. You can just kind of play on your phone until the end of the hour, right? That that's really not the idea here. That's not really the case of what James is trying to communicate. The way that the conditional is constructed in the Greek actually implies that there is a real, specific, and continuing need, okay? That the lack of wisdom, in this case, is a real, present, and specific thing. So that's not up for grabs. He's not speaking to that really conditionally. And so in our context here, the lack of wisdom related to the handling of trials in our lives is actually assumed, okay? He's not really saying, if you lack that wisdom. However, the reality, while the reality of that lack is a given, the individual awareness, our individual awareness of that lack is very much not a given. Our awareness of that lack may not be, and I'd even say often is not, proportionate to our true lack of it. A couple examples of this, even just in the Bible explicitly, are that just as all of mankind is in fact spiritually sick and in need of a physician, right, the Pharisees very much counted themselves among the healthy. And also another one, Jesus talks about blessed are the poor in spirit. Well, the reality is all of mankind is poor in spirit. None has anything to offer spiritually apart from Christ, and yet really the truth is, blessed are those who realize their spiritual poverty. And so we have kind of a similar situation here, right? James says, if any of you lacks wisdom, but really the truth is we all do, and it is implied in the construction of that phrase that he uses. So what you need to think is, yes, and this certainly applies to me. I lack wisdom, and and, and I do, right, personally, and each of us do. I lack wisdom when it comes to having the proper perspective and the proper actions in the face of trial in my life. Um, Thomas Manton puts it this way. I'll just paraphrase what he says. I like what he says. He says, if any of you is universal, really, the truth is that all creatures lack in this by God's design, that we would have our eyes set on him in dependence. Surely he who supposedly lacks nothing 
in reality lacks most of all. For those who are most aware of their own lack are in turn the most aware of God and his promises. And that's good and absolutely relevant to this text before us. And so before we move on to James's specific exhortation here, we do need to talk a little bit about what he means by wisdom, right? Because that's the topic of the hour, wisdom. If any of you lacks wisdom. So James is going to pick up the word one more time in this particular letter. So glance over to chapter 3, and we'll look at that. So James chapter 3. And starting in verse 13 there is when he picks up this topic of wisdom. Let me read a little bit of that. So James chapter 3, starting in verse 13. And we'll just look at another example of James talking about wisdom. He says in verse 13, Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist... There will be disorder and every vile practice. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. And so we see that for James, wisdom, first of all, looking at verse 13 there, is something which is demonstrated actively right? That it's something which is shown in someone's life by their works, and specifically through humble, selfless works. So that's the first thing that James tells us about wisdom. And then in verses 14 through 16, we see that it is absolutely incompatible with, he calls out, bitter jealousy or selfish ambition. That these really are marks of a demonic counterfeit of true godly wisdom. And then finally, as he summarizes in verse 17, if you skip down to chapter 3, verse 17, he says, again, the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. And his summary almost reads like Paul's description of the fruit of the Spirit, right? That's kind of what I thought of. The things which James describes as wisdom are actually just the practical outworkings of righteousness in the life of a believer. And so, of course, they do, in fact, therefore, have a lot in common with the fruit of the Spirit. Now, a couple definitions I came across that I thought were helpful for wisdom in this context. One has said that wisdom is the practical use of knowledge for righteousness in everyday living. That's good. Another says that wisdom, for James in particular, is the practical living of righteousness even in the face of trial. It is meeting life and its trials with decisions and actions consistent with God and his will. Uses of the word in the Greek Old Testament usually have to do with practical skill, so especially with relation to craftsmanship, like with the building of the temple, for example. And so here again, or the tabernacle. And so here again, we could say that wisdom is the practical skill of taking knowledge of truth, which God has given us, and translating that into daily righteous living. That's really what we have in view when we talk about wisdom here. Now, in light of verses 2 through 4, you could say again that it is particularly the practical skill of doing this in the midst of trials, right? In the midst of trials of various kinds, in fact. And so, again, when we realize what's in view with wisdom, I think it becomes all the more clear that, yes, we certainly do lack that. 
in varying degrees in different ways, but absolutely everyone, if they were being honest, would have to raise their hand and say, yeah, that's me. I, I lack wisdom, right? I lack the practical skill of living righteously in the face of trials of various kinds and of doing it from the proper perspective. And James says, yeah, you do, and we all do. So he's going to tell us what to do about that. And so now that we know that this applies to us, that we know this is relevant for us, listen to James's announcement. Verse 5, you can read along. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. So you lack wisdom? Here's what you should do. Listen very carefully, right? Ask God. That's it. He says, ask God. There's not two steps. There's not three steps. There's not a magic spell involved. James says, ask God. Specifically, the ESV has it, let him ask God, which is worth clarifying a little bit. Um, Because let him ask God sounds pretty soft, right? It sounds almost like a suggestion. Like, well, one thing you could do if you want is you could ask God. But that is really not the sense of it in the original. This is an example of something that came up in verses 2 through 4 as well, and actually is going to come up a lot throughout the book of James, so it's worth being familiar with this concept. And it's the concept of a third-person command, okay? We don't have that in English, right? I can command you to do something, and in fact, in English, that's the only command we have, right? I can command you to do something. I can't really, in a logical way that would make sense to our ears, command myself, or further, as is applicable here, I can't really command he or command she, right? A third-person command doesn't really make sense to us in English. But that's what we have here in James, that James literally commands he. And the he that he's commanding is the one who lacks wisdom, right? That's the idea here. So honestly, I think maybe a a good way of understanding it is to think of it not as let him ask God, but how's about he must ask God? That's kind of the gist of it. It's not as if, because this is what another issue with let him ask God, it's not as if you are being commanded to allow someone else to do something. Because it does kind of have that feeling in English, right? Let has this idea of permission. Like you're giving permission to someone else to do this. But it's really not the spirit of it. It's really that he, the one who lacks wisdom, he is being commanded to ask God, okay? So let him ask, or as I have suggested, he must ask God who gives generously to all without reproach. And now we're into the basis of the command. And the basis of the command is nothing less than the very character of God. It is his eternally unchanging nature on which this command is based. If anyone lacks wisdom, he must ask God. And the reason is first and foremost because God is he who gives generously to all without reproach. That's the reason. So you can break that into three pieces, and that's how we're going to look at it. First, that God gives in a certain way. Okay, ESV has it as generously. Yours might have something different. Second, that he gives to all. And then third, that he does so without reproach is what the ESV has. So first, this idea of God giving generously is an interesting one. I think when I hear generously, and I think others are probably similar, we think in terms of quantity, right? That a generous giver is one who gives much. And that is certainly true of God, no doubt. God gives greatly, both in quantity, as in amount, and in magnitude. Absolutely. 
When we consider all of the many mercies and graces that God has shown us in our life, we know that that is absolutely true, both spiritually and materially. God is a generous giver in that sense. That's amply proven. But that is not so much the sense of this word here, which is translated as generously. I think the best option that I came across is more this idea of freely, or closely related would be liberally. The idea is primarily that God gives without hesitation, that God in his very nature of love is at all times ready to give freely and without hesitation to those who would ask of him. I think that's really the idea that James is communicating. This readiness of God to give, which he allows to be activated at a moment's notice by faithful prayer. So another aspect of this, of this way that God gives, would be this idea of singleness. That's kind of wrapped up into the word as well. That God gives singly, okay? It's almost to say that he does so without selfish motive. That's kind of the idea there. And it's really, honestly, an appropriate sense of the word to draw out in our context because it stands in great contrast to the double-minded one who's to come up in future verses, right, who asks out one side of their mouth and out the other doesn't really expect it to happen, right, who is sort of living faith in God and mostly not. They're asking, but they don't really think it's going to work. And so God stands in contrast to that in the way that he gives. God does not give in a double-minded way. God gives singly, okay? And that's kind of the idea you could say there. Um, In terms of this aspect of God's nature, there's a really great illustration of it in Matthew chapter 7. I'll just read this for you. It's starting in verse 7 there. Jesus said, Ask, and it will be given you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks it will be opened. Or, which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? And now listen to verse 11, most of all here. If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? And so God is ready to give good things to his children when they ask. He does so without hesitation. That's kind of that first idea. Okay, on to the second part of it. The second aspect of God's character, which James identifies, is that God is God who gives to all, he says, to all. That in his readiness, he makes no distinctions between men. Now, I hasten to add, just as James does, if you just read forward, that there is an exception to this, and a glaring one, that God does make distinctions among the askers on the basis of how they ask. That is, distinctions are in fact sharply made, and that's going to be a whole theme of the latter part of this section, between he who asks in faith versus he who doubts, the double-minded one who asks in continuing doubt. James says that such a one must not expect to receive anything from the Lord, and we'll address that. But generally speaking, this first point that James makes is that God gives readily to all, okay? And this lack of partiality is actually an aspect of God's character that James is going to exhort us to emulate later in the book. So look over to chapter 2, actually. Let's see. And yeah, just starting in verse 1 there. Let me read a bit of this. James 2, verse 1. Again, drawing out what James means by to all, right? This idea of impartiality. Verse 1. My brothers, 
Show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down at my feet, have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? And skip forward to verse 8. If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. And so I think it's this impartiality that James has in mind as he describes God here as one who gives to all. That God does not make distinctions among men such as an evil judge would, or the way that sinful men do. That God shows no such partiality. Rather, as James exhorts us to do the same, God gives freely to all. So then there's this third thing which James says at least explicitly about God's character here. And it is that God gives without reproach. That God gives without reproach. The word can be reproach, revile, chide. Um, the idea is that God gives without any sort of negative response to go with it, right? Without any sort of negative response alongside it. Without reprimand, how's about? And I think this is something that, humanly speaking, we're all familiar with. We've all been guilty of this ourselves, in all likelihood, right? That we may grant a request, or we may have one granted to us, but it's not without a sharp remark to go with it, right? It's not without a salty attitude to go with it. And James says that this is not so with God. That again, going right along actually with this idea of his single-mindedness in giving, that it is a single mind of love and grace with which God gives. That again, he gives without reproach to the one who asks. Now, one of the commentators I was reading um, brought an interesting aspect into this that I want to share with you. He talked about the fact that while it is true, plainly from James, that God gives without reproach, we can't misunderstand this to mean as if he gives without any expectation, okay? Now, we know quite well that the opposite is true, actually. To him who much has been given, much will be expected, in fact. And this was greatly demonstrated by Christ himself, such as is recorded in Matthew chapter 11. There, Jesus denounced the cities where most of his mighty works had been done because they did not repent. There was an expectation of a certain response to what they were given. Jesus says in verse 23 of Matthew chapter 11, For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I tell you that it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. The expectation was that they would have repented in the face of such mighty works. And so again, as James says clearly, God may give without reproach, and he does, but don't take this to mean that he gives without any expectations, because that is certainly not the case. God does expect you to put to use that which he gives you. And this brings us to the last bit of verse 5. That final clause there in verse 5. And it will be given him, James says. Now it's really easy, honestly, to just read right past those words as sort of just an addendum on the end of what he's already said. 
And honestly, I almost kind of did that while putting this sermon together because it's just sort of a short little blurb there and you kind of move on. But we can't do that. This is a statement of fact in God's word. And the fact is that he who goes to God in faith, asking for wisdom, perhaps especially wisdom for dealing with trials, as is the context, that this wisdom will be given him. How simple and yet encouraging it is to realize that we have every reason when we approach God in faith to expect, without a doubt, that it will be granted, that he will give this wisdom to he who asks. That's tremendous. And so verse 5 again, If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. Now, there is one more thing that we need to contemplate about God's character in particular before we move on. And it is not explicitly stated the way that the other aspects are that we've talked about, but it is absolutely foundational to the other things being true. Here's the thing. If someone is going to give something, whether freely or not, with reproach or not, whether to all or not, right? We know that God gives without reproach to all freely. But whatever the case, if they're going to give something, they must have that which is requested of them, right? Very simply. And the thing which is asked of God here is wisdom. And here is the last point on God's character then. God is the very fountain and source of wisdom, and he possesses it in infinite measure from which he gives. And there's a lot of places that we could go in scripture to see this plain truth, Um, but I think my favorite example that I ran across is out of Job chapter 28. So why don't you guys turn over there with me to Job chapter 28, and we will look at this. Job chapter 28. So first, let me just summarize verses 1 through 11 of that chapter for time, okay? So in verses 1 through 11 of Job 28, you have the supposedly great works of man on display, right? That man travels far across the land, that he mines deep into the earth, that he dispels the darkness by creating light, and that he dams up streams even so that they do not trickle, it says. Yet with all that, You're left with verse 12. Look down to Job chapter 28, verse 12, and read with me. But where shall wisdom be found? And where is the place of understanding? Man does not know its worth, and it is not found in the land of the living. The deep says, it is not in me, and the sea says, it is not with me. It cannot be bought for gold, and silver cannot be weighed as its price. It cannot be valued in the gold of Ophir, in precious onyx or sapphire. Gold and glass cannot equal it, nor can it be exchanged for jewels of fine gold. No mention shall be made of coral or of crystal. The price of wisdom is above pearls. The topaz of Ethiopia cannot equal it, nor can it be valued in pure gold. So to summarize that, for all of man's supposed greatness and success, he does not know where to find wisdom, and frankly, even if he did, he couldn't afford it, is basically what Job says there. The thing which is most valuable of all, that being wisdom, is out of, reach in man, of, out of reach from man in every way. But thankfully for us, we have verse 23. Scan down to verse 23. Verse 23, God understands the way to it, and he knows its place. 24, for he looks to the ends of the earth and sees everything under the heavens. 
when he gave to the wind its weight and apportioned the waters by measure, when he made a decree for the rain and a way for the lightning of the thunder, then he saw it and declared it. He established it and searched it out. And he said to man, Behold, the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom. And to turn away from evil is understanding. Listen to verse 23 again. God understands the way to it, and he knows its place. And then just as importantly, verse 28. And he said to man, Behold, the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom. And to turn away from evil is understanding. And this last truth is repeated all throughout Scripture. This idea that the fear of the Lord is wisdom, or alternately that it is the beginning of wisdom, it's often put. That wisdom can only be found through proper relationship to or proper orientation towards God. In James, this is captured in that idea of first recognizing our own lack of wisdom and then coming faithfully before God knowing who he is to ask for it. And as James says, it will be given to him. So I need to make a quick comment, though, on the negative angle of this. And what I mean is that, positively speaking, we've identified that God is the source of wisdom, beyond a shadow of doubt. And that's why we're commanded to go to him to ask for it. But negatively speaking, we need to realize what this means about where wisdom is not to be found. And so very quickly, first of all, wisdom is not to be found through some sort of mystical inner contemplation, right? It is not hidden inside of us, just waiting to be found. And this is especially true for the unbeliever. For the unbeliever, all that is found within is greater and greater sin and depravity and ultimately confusing darkness. That is it. Nothing more. Now, for the believer who is indwelt by the Holy Spirit, I think you could almost start to make an argument that wisdom is within us, right? Because we have the Holy Spirit within us. But even then, it really isn't, right? It's within God himself who has taken up his abode within us by his Holy Spirit. And so by extension, what this means is if wisdom is not in me and it's not in you individually, then the truth is you're not going to find wisdom in anyone else either, not as a source. No matter how old they are or how successful they may be, that true godly wisdom of the sort that James is talking about here the sort of wisdom for righteous daily living, even in the face of trials, that this sort of wisdom, its source is only found in one place, and that is in God himself, not in mankind at all as a source, not in their books, not in their podcasts, not in their TV shows or their blogs or their magazines or their speeches, that nowhere are you going to find a source of this wisdom other than in God himself. And so, as, some, as James says, do yourself a favor and ask God. And if someone comes to you looking for wisdom, do them a favor and point them to God. Now, that doesn't mean that you can't join them as they do so. And I think especially, of course, through direction through Scripture. But really, you need to be pointed to, and others need to be pointed to, God himself. Proverbs 2.6 puts it quite plainly. There it's written, For the Lord gives wisdom. From his mouth come knowledge and understanding. And to be clear, I'm not trying to go too far with this, and I think I could. Um, The thing is, right, God does gift men and women with certain measures of wisdom. 
And honestly, that's like the whole thing we're talking about, right? That you ask for wisdom and that God gives it. He promises to. You could even say that using this wisdom to help others is one of the expectations that God would have as he gives it. Um, And honestly, there's great examples throughout history, perhaps no greater than King Solomon himself, whom God gifted tremendously with wisdom. And Solomon was a great help to others. But the thing that I'm trying to emphasize is that God himself is the only ultimate source of any true wisdom, okay? So turn back to James with me, back to James chapter 1, if you haven't already. And let's continue into the rest of our verses. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea, that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Now in verse 5, James made clear that the reasoning for the command is based on God himself. It's based on who God is. And now in verses 6 through 8, James is going to emphasize man's responsibility in this exchange. Okay, And man's responsibility, as he asks God for wisdom, is as James puts it in verse 6, to ask in faith with no doubting. That's what he says. Now, what is meant by faith here is really confidence in who God is. I think that's the best way to look at it. That the one who asks God for wisdom must do so confidently, expectantly, in faith, on the basis of God and his character. One commentator put it like this, that this faith is a painstaking and concentrated effort to obtain blessing for oneself or for others, either material or spiritual, inspired by a confident belief that God in Jesus can supply all human need. And in our case here, with regard to wisdom especially, I would add, it's not only that God can supply this, but that he will do so. For that is the assurance given at the end of verse 5. It will be given him. Now, this requirement of faith is something which is absolutely fundamental in our dealings with God. It is perhaps the most fundamental truth of our relationship to God that it can only be by faith and that it must be by faith, that there is no other way to relate to God at all. I think the best explanation of it is given in Hebrews chapter 11. At the top of the chapter there, starting in verse 1, a definition of faith is given. The writer of Hebrews says, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it the people of old received their condemnation. By faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. And then in verse 6, to the essentialness of it, right, he says, And without faith it is impossible to please him, For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. In the context of prayer, which is really our context in James, the requirement for faith is seen quite clearly, and especially so from an interaction which Matthew records between Jesus and his disciples. And it's from Matthew chapter 21. Let me read this to you, starting in verse 17. Again, speaking to the um, essentialness of faith, particularly in prayer, okay? Listen to this. So Matthew 21, verse 17. And leaving them, he, Jesus, went out of the city to Bethany and lodged there. In the morning, as he was returning to the city, he became hungry. 
And seeing a fig tree by the wayside, he went to it and found nothing on it but only leaves. And he said to it, May no fruit ever come from you again. And the fig tree withered at once. When the disciples saw it, they marveled, saying, How did the fig tree wither at once? And Jesus answered them, Truly I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, you will not only do what has been done to the fig tree, but even if you say to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, it will happen. And whatever you ask in prayer, you will receive if you have faith. And so we see that faith is a requirement in prayer especially. But there is something we need to be careful about here, especially as we hear Jesus' words out of Matthew there. This does not mean that faithful prayer is some sort of blank check from God just waiting to be filled out. First of all, in our context in James, the only prayer which is promised to be granted is that for wisdom, and especially really for wisdom in dealing with trials. But whenever we consider faithful prayer, again, especially with words like Jesus' out of Matthew 11, I think it can start to seem as if, if we could only just muster the right faith, that we could therefore coerce God into giving us whatever we would ask. But this is simply not so. For one thing, while Jesus, and now subsequently James, as is our case, clearly identify faith as a requirement for prayer, it is never intended to be the only thing which determines whether or not a request is granted. Just look over to James chapter 4 with me, and James himself will give us a really good example of this. Top of James chapter 4, verse 2. James says, You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask, and now listen to verse 3 especially, you ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. So he doesn't say you ask wrongly and you doubt it, right? As if that's the only reason ever that a prayer might not be answered if it were asked with doubt. No, James shows clearly that in this case, A prayer was denied for lack of confident, no, not for lack of confident faith, not for the presence of doubt. Rather, it is denied on the basis of wrong motive in this case. So this is one thing that makes clear that it's not a blank check, for God makes no promise whatsoever that he will grant requests which are not made in accordance with his own will and pleasure. In fact, he promises not to grant such requests. But this brings us back to James 1 now. Let's turn back over to James 1 if you haven't. Because here, the soil, so to speak, for properly motivated and properly grounded, confident faith is richly provided. And again, it is found in everything we've already discussed about the very nature of God. Listen to verse 5 again. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask, God who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. We see his awesome character on display, that God who gives generously to all without reproach. There is his nature to support the confident faith that is required in prayer. God gives freely. He is ready to give, even as a loving father, as we looked at. That is who he is, that he gives to all without partiality, not judging between men in the evil ways that we ourselves do, that God gives without reproach, that there is no word of reprimand that accompanies his loving gifts. And as we went elsewhere in Job to see most clearly that the other attribute of God upon which this confident faith is to be based 
is that he has that wisdom which is requested of him. That he is, in fact, the only, the very source and keeper of it. And again, there too in verse 5 was a promise that it will be given him. And so everything needed for confident, faithful prayer of the sort that James is talking about is perfectly provided here. And this too is what makes the lack of that faith or the presence of that doubt, alternately, such an issue. And so let's finish up our text and look at the rest of verses 6 through 8. Verse 6. But let him ask in faith with no doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. So just as much as the one who asks in faithful prayer can and really must be confident that his request will be granted, so much so the one who doubts should be equally expectant that he will receive nothing. As James says, that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. Now, James is going to use two word pictures kind of simultaneously to describe the one who doubts. The first is that he is like a wave of the sea, and the second is that he is a double-minded man. So to the first picture, um, most commentators agree, and it makes sense when you think about it, that what James has in view is the consistent irregularities of the sea. Importantly, what that means is he doesn't have in view some single large wave, right? Or even a single event, like a storm. That He's talking about the overall pattern of constantly shifting. Douglas Moo puts it this way. He says, the picture here is not of a wave mounting in height and crashing to shore, but of the swell of the sea, never having the same texture and shape from moment to moment, but always changing with the variations in wind, direction, and strength. And that is how the sea is. It is very characteristic of it. And this tells us much about the sort of doubt that James is talking about. Now, James is not condemning the one who has a doubt or who occasionally finds themselves needing to address a doubt. James is addressing the one who lives in characteristic doubt, who lives in a consistent state of doubt, constantly shifting from here to there, back and forth, depending how the wind blows, right? Just as the sea is constantly just shifting up and down. That's the idea. We have plenty of examples of faithful followers of God all throughout Scripture who have still struggled with the occasional doubt. Perhaps there's no greater example than that of Abraham. Listen to how Paul describes Abraham, or Abram at the time, uh, in Romans chapter 4, verse 18. Paul says this of Abram, In hope he believed against hope, that he should become the father of many nations, as he had been told, so shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead, since he was about a hundred years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised, and that is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. A great faith, certainly, but even in the context of one of the verses that Paul is quoting about Abram, we see quite clearly that he too was a man who struggled with occasional doubts. Genesis 15 says this, After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. 
Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But listen to this. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. Do you hear the doubt there? This is after God has already very explicitly promised Abram that one of his own offspring would inherit the land, that God would give the land to them. But Genesis 15 continues. God gives more grace. Genesis 15, verse 4. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This is immediately after the section I just read. This is God talking to Abram. This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven and number the stars if you are able to number them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. And this is the kind of faith which God demands through the letter of James. Doubt which is only passing, and that is amply cleared away by the promises and character of God. However, for the one who is in a constant state of doubting God and his character, again, James says quite clearly, that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. And so we've arrived at the end of our text now, verse 8, for the second of the two word pictures. He says, He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Double-minded, or more literally, two-souled. This man that James refers to, he's the inspiration for a character who's mentioned in passing in Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress. It's Mr. Facing Both Ways. He has much in common as well with another character who is described as, but a waterman, looking one way and rowing another. Now, some commentators speculate that James actually coined this word that he uses, double-minded or two-souled. He uses it one other place in his letter. Glance over to chapter 4 and just see it in, uh, starting in verse 7 there. James 4, starting in verse 7. He says, Submit yourselves therefore to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. And so it does seem that the intended meaning of this word is one who has divided loyalties, whose devotion is not pure, is the idea. This is one who simultaneously desires to reap the benefits of relationship with God, and yet at the same time demonstrates through perpetual doubts of God's character and commandments by the way that he lives that he is in reality in opposition to God. The NIV actually goes so far as to translate verse 8 as this. They say, their loyalty is divided between God and the world, and they are unstable in everything they do. Now, I think that's quite a bit more of an exposition than a translation, uh, even for the NIV, but I do think they've captured the correct sense of it, right? That that really is the idea, that their loyalty is divided between God and the world. And so although the most important commandment of Scripture is one which commands that you love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength, that this double-minded person has instead opted to do so only in part, consistently. And again, as James says quite simply, that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. So then, let's read through our verses one more time in closing. James chapter 1, verses 5 through 8. If any of you lacks wisdom, 
Let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith, with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. And so as you deal with trials, and as we all do in various ways, um, in all likelihood, even right now, right, we're all dealing with trials of some sort, we need to know how to live righteously in faith. James's response is simple. He says, go to God. Ask God for this wisdom. He is there waiting and ready to give it. That is who he is. That is who God is. James exhorts us lovingly to approach God in faith according to his character. We have no reason whatsoever to doubt God, who has, in fact, so richly proven his love for us. Let's close on this verse out of Romans chapter 8, verse 32, describing God as, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Let's close in a word of prayer. Father God, God, thank you for your word. Thank you for the opportunity, God, to come together as a body and to sit under the teaching of your word together, God. I pray, God, that you would help each one of us in our own lives to humbly submit ourselves to the truth of these words, God, that we would realize that, yes, we do lack wisdom in varying ways and varying degrees, God, as we deal with trials in our lives, trials that in reality you are using to conform us to the image of your Son, Jesus Christ. I pray, God, that each of us would realize who you are, God, that you are God who gives freely, who is ready to give, that you give to all without partiality, and that you do so without reproach, God, that we would come to you in a faith that would be appropriate in response to a recognition of who you are, God, and that that is who you are. God, I pray that none of us would be in that position of constant doubt, Lord. That one really is not saved, that such a person, Lord, really just needs to repent from sin and put their faith in Christ in the first place. But God, for those of us who have repented, God, I just thank you so much that we have access to you through prayer and that you promise to grant this kind of wisdom when we ask the way that we're told to. And so, God, again, I thank you for this time, and I pray for each one who is here, and I pray all these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.